continues. Uh, the tactical task to breathe fire has now been issued. Good to go. You will breathe fire day in and day out for the next two months. You will breathe fire in your sleep. You will feel fatigue. You will feel fear. You will feel happiness. You will feel regret. You will feel sadness. At the end of the day, you will continue to breathe fire. Good to go. Okay, with that said, you will take the operational instinct and here's Here's what I tell you to do, and it's it's almost one of those impossible tasks, but you gotta fight for it every day. You gotta use that operational instinct, and you gotta know what happens before it happens. You gotta stay methodical on the field. You gotta stay clear-headed on the field. You gotta work any resource as required to move like this, move methodical, and ensure you always have to support in position to affect the fight and bring fires as required to fucking kill the enemy. Kill the enemy! Kill the enemy! Kill the enemy! Gonna go! We are going to have required obligations strength to protect those who need to be protected. on the battlefield is gonna be very challenging, but don't ever forget this. You are obligated to protect and serve the Marines on the left and right flank of you 24-7. Good to go. Yeah. You will all come home together. Good to go. Yeah. To exploit the opportunity you have to call home to your, to your loved ones, Get right with your God. You might not all make it back, all right? We need to come to terms with that. The strength of the wolf is the pack. The strength of the pack is the wolf. You have to be able to rely on that Marine to your left and right, just like the CO said, he has got to be able to rely on you. If you're an atheist, play along. Giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Back on the podcast after, uh, I don't know, a little over a month hiatus is uh, Chantel Taylor, uh, British Army Combat Medic. Chantel, what's up? Hey, John. How's it going? Good, good. Uh, you took a little trip. Um, you were gone for a little over a month. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I was working. Some of us have got to go and work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, I was, it was nice. It was a nice, it was a, it was, I can, I call it work, but it was, a, I was in a nice place. Nice. That's cool. Yeah. I, I, I took a little mini vacation myself. So it was, you know, even if you're not doing anything super spectacular, sometimes just taking some time off is really good and kind of 
good for the soul, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I think, it, you know, because the UK's so cold um, and sometimes a little bit miserable, it was nice to get somewhere warm, you know, and have a little bit of a break in the sun. Right, right. Okay, so uh, for this episode, I had an interview with a former Navy corpsman who was attached to uh, the Marine Corps, and he had a few deployments uh, as a corpsman with the Marine unit uh, to Afghanistan. And then he got out of the military, and now he's linked up with the Global Surgical Medical Support Group, and they're doing some really good things over in Iraq, and and now they're trying to get into Syria. So, you know, it's kind of an interesting concept to get out of the military but still work in a way where your your skills and your specialty is highly valuable and used. This is something that you have a lot of experience with, uh, Chantel, is there? Did you feel like there was a major difference in working as a medic in the British Army and then working as a medic outside of the military? Um, I, th- I think it was almost. I mean, especially for me, it was almost like a a natural progression. And uh, and I don't know what that sort of um, what you like the transition was, but I wasn't ready to come home. And I think most most soldiers and for sure medics. Um, when when you come back from an operational tour, and then what happens is you go into a different cycle, whether that be training or whether it be um, just logistically your um, your units regrouping, it goes very flat. So I, I literally left um, left the military, and within a month I was back in Afghanistan as a as a private contractor. But I must say, you know that. Depending on what job you go into, I went into, I worked with the um, Department of State and then Department of Defense, and we were training Afghan medics. So it was very much, I, f- I still felt very, very much part of what I'd um, been in Afghanistan before, you know, so it was, for me, it was quite, I felt like I needed to do it, you know, because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I wanted, I, I definitely knew I wanted to leave the army at that point, but I didn't, I was a little bit unsure, and I'd maybe, um, the military is not great at guiding you into what, um, where you should be. And I'm quite headstrong. And I, I thought, right, I want to go back. And then yeah, that sounds crazy. And then I stayed there for two years um, doing that job. And it, but it was, it, you, you still, I felt very much still part of what was happening because we had Marines, U.S. Marines in our little fob. And then, you know, I had a, a Navy corpsman um, working with me. So what, what I'd sort of lost when I left the military, I just picked right back up again. Right, and, and a month really—that's a very short time, you know, to kind yeah, of make that jump, you know. Um, and and that was a month after you returned from a deployment, or a month after you had separated from the military. No, I I returned um, from my final deployment, and then did a year back in the unit, which was almost like it was a bit of a training cycle, and then also I had to do all of my the courses to leave the military, and I was still, you know, I I loved the military, so I didn't I didn't leave because I was sort of. Um, you know, sad or anything like that. I just, I, I was still kind of hungry to do stuff. And I thought, well, I gave half of my working life to the military. What else, what else is there? And I'd got to a point where I was moving fairly quickly up the ranks and I knew that that would probably, that my last deployment would be the the last time that I would have been in um, a combative situation. And again, this may sound foolish and I, looking back, it probably was, but I wasn't ready to not, be in that situation I felt like I was 
I was at a, a point in my career where that's where I felt I added most value. I wasn't ready for an office. Right. Probably, I'm probably not ready for an office now, and that's quite maybe that's I don't know maybe that's just what's what's in us. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting because you know I, I have a lot of friends who are at that point where they're retiring and or, or thinking about retiring you know, mid thirties, early forties, but it's still an age where you're still physically capable, you know, uh, you know, unless you've been through some kind of horrific injuries, and yeah, I think, sure. you know, with that kind of training and, and years of doing it. And I feel like you would still feel like there's more to do and, and you're kind of not finished. And part of, I think, and, and this is something that we discussed on previous episodes, like part of, the transitional process where some people get lost is where they lose that kind of sense of purpose. And once you lose that, you know, people kind of let their minds go astray and, and then they kind of forget who they are. And that's when they kind of get into that dark hole, you know? Yeah, that's, that's so true. I mean, when I left, I actually, I, I became fitter. I became stronger because I'd, I kind of learned the stuff that I lacked um, previously, I knew I, you know, we all know our own bodies and, and what we can do with them. So I kind of, I just, because I knew that I'd left the military, which was, you know, you're always offered all of that support. And so you, I'm not saying that I was on my own, but you kind of, you have to be the, almost like the very best you can be because if, if shit heads south quickly, generally you're not going to have the same support you did in the military. Right. I was lucky in, in some situations, but I was just very aware that that would be the case. So I got really physically strong and fit, and um, and I, do you know I, I'd learned an, an awful lot of new skills when I left, and and some part of me then actually after, after that two years that I'd had out, and then another four in um, Baghdad, I'd probably say that I was probably in a good like frame of mind to go back in and potentially um, I'd learned that much more that I probably would have been like more effective if that makes sense. Although I was I was fine, I was you know in the military, but I I just kept adding more more strings to my bow, and it, you know, and I became I don't know that I had just a, a wider view. You know, I'd worked with far more different types of um, forces, um, different units, and right. just yeah, and then just ensured that I kept yeah. And you're right, you're right about the dark hole too. Is that if you do, and I don't know whether um, sometimes you know when we discuss the the PTSD. Um, issues i think that it's actually tougher coming leaving the military sometimes than what you've seen i think that's a really hard thing to deal with like um if, if you've been a soldier that served you know any length of time or in particular a career soldier that's been in there your entire adult life um actually leaving the military is uh, more more scary than doing anything right but because you become nothing again you it's almost like you you still you still got your friends that are in the military, but you you are either a Mister or Miss or a Mrs. You, you you're no longer inside. You feel like you're still a soldier, but your your life changes. And right. that's I think that that's actually a lot of the time with things like PTS PTSD. That's very much a massive part of it. But it's it's, it's something that's not really looked into. You know, everyone's looking into oh, well, you must have seen really bad shit. Well. Actually, at that time, it was okay because I was with a group of people that were seeing the exact same bad shit. So you still you still felt that cohesive, um, and you were very much part of that group. When you leave that group, that's when the the problems start. Right. Right. So, Chantel, let me ask on the like on the medical side of things. Mm-hmm. You know, 
here in the States, and I'm sure in the UK as well, after such a long extended period of fighting, you know, there were advancements made on the medical side uh, for, you know, Western units and, and uh, people are getting out and kind of running courses and, and doing that and really helping bring up the overall level of knowledge when it comes to like TCCC, uh, bleeding control, that kind of thing. Yeah. Is it, you know, and like you said, you've worked with different uh, medics, corpsmen, um, you know, from uh, different units and, and nations post-military. Would you say that in the contracting world, the level of medical skill is, you know, up to par, at least if you're going to try and compare it maybe to like an active duty military unit? Um, well, you know, in some ways, in some ways, because you have you have more freedom and I think it's much of a muchness because, you know, you must always keep that same standard. You, you must never sort of lose that. And in, and in some ways where where you're no longer in the military and maybe where kits um, not as um, readily available, you do have to think on your feet. But I think I, I was very much of the, the, the mindset of, not to get too clever with it, you know, that you can't, the basics work, you know, and the basics done well are, are always going to be your sort of saving grace. So that those are the sorts of things that, that are, are never going to leave you, you know, you, identifying a need for early surgery, get, you know, st- stopping the bleed, position, patient, patient positioning, all of that good stuff. Um, so, I, yeah, I found, um, I suppose my one bugbear about in the, the private sector is that what was happening is I came, I've came across, and not all of them, but uh, several um, contractors that will go and do a med course, and then they're all of a sudden a medic, and I, you know that, and it, it pisses you off because I think, well, you can do a course, you've got you know a couple of um, patients, but the reality is, is that are you are you prepared for a mass casualty incident? As 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 most senior medics, you know, would have either been involved in or at least be party to. Especially if you've if you've been on a few tours or you've you, you've certainly um, maneuvered around those sorts of units, so that can get a, a, a tiny bit frustrating because they you can almost um, hear them you know reading verbatim from a, a sort of a medical pamphlet, but what you don't get in those sort of pamphlets is um, real life experience and the, the the nuances of of dealing with not only casualties but dealing with people that are in what you can call sort of battle shock and run it and just basically controlling a scene a bit better than just concentrating on casualties, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, yeah, it does. And so I have a question. So for you, you know, your official title in the British military was a combat medic, right? Now, after you go through your like basic training, uh, like basic soldiering, how long is the, is the, the schooling for you to like officially be designated a combat medic and be ready to deploy kind of thing? Okay. Well, we have different levels. So you start off as a combat. Well, when I joined, it was an awful long time ago, not that long. Um, but so you start off, you go and you do your, like you say, basic training and then you go. And I think it actually, if I can, God, if, if I can even remember combat medics of level three, um, and then you you leave your trade training as a combat medic level two, which was approximately a year. So then you have to go to a field unit, and that's when you're basically you know you're learning all the crap like painting boxes and humping and dumping kit and all that sort of crap. And then you you can basically assist um, a combat medical t- technician class one, um, and then you go back to 
what's known as our depot, our training, um, which is a tri-service depot. So you have um, all the Navy, Air Force and Army um, doing their courses together. Uh, and then you, I think that, that initial, that you do another six weeks of your class one kind of work, which is um, more of the, the sort of surgical interventions. And just, to, I suppose, because you've been, a, you can deploy as a class two, um, but you're usually assisting someone. And I'll say this, you know, I, I, I've had class um, two medics underneath me in, in operational theatres and they're worth their weight in gold. You know, I wouldn't even potentially have to supervise them in, in some circumstances, but they always have a class one as a buffer. And I suppose legally, right. that's generally how you deploy. But you can't say, if, you, if you're attached to an infantry company and then you, know, you, you come under contact and the class one happens to be on the other side of a track to the class two, then the class two is not going to be doing nothing. Do you right. see what I'm saying? So, but, but anyway, that's generally, so you have a class one that's there to kind of guide you and all that sort of stuff. Um, the class one will also do the, what we call the battlefield advanced trauma life support course, which is all the, um, again, surgical airways and all that sort of stuff before they deploy. Um, yeah. So Jim, and, and also you get all the pre-deployment sort of um, medical training. I used to run that for the brigade that I, um, deployed with and you know you make full use of um, teams like amputees in action and and you use sort of battle simulation all sort of in, encompassed into one big exercise and that kind of that can sort out the potentially who the suitable frontline medics are to who's suitable to potentially be back in the the main operating bases does that make sense right so kind of like in, in terms of having the ability to work under pressure uh, yeah. or potentially handle like a mass casualty event. Yeah. And, and some people, and it's, there's no shame in it. Some people, it's, it's not, I mean, I think generally, it's, you know, the, wherever you are, you've got to be sort of prepared to deal with it. But the, we do the very best that we can in training to try and mirror what happens in the field. But then you can't really add to that the, the proper emotions because people, you can you can put as much smoke in uh, bat sims and all that sort of good stuff, but it still doesn't simulate what happens on the battlefield, really. Right. Especially if, if it's one of your own injured or, you know, all that sort of stuff. But having said that, I think people probably generally do better on the battlefield than they do in training because I, I always used to feel a bit like um, you're always under a lot of pressure, but when you're out there, it doesn't seem to – you feel under less pressure because – just seems to kick in, and you haven't got like a million doctors watching you. You know, oh, what, what, why did you do that? Why do you know all that sort of bollocks? And, and so you tend to, you're a bit more free to actually think about what you're doing. Right, and I would also imagine that you're probably kind of a little more motivated as well. Yeah, yeah, and you, and you, know, you don't want to let the guys down around you, and you, and you, and you certainly don't want them to see that you're flapping. I was used to remember. Like people would tell you, you know, you're always really calm, and I'm I'm not calm at all. But you have to kind of look a bit like that. You have to. You can't run around saying, "Oh, you know, everyone's going to die." You know, you, right. you can't really have that sort of. That doesn't instill confidence in the the people around you. But, right. but there's always there's always fun and games to be had, isn't there? <laughs> right. So, so you've had different tours in the military, like where you've worked in a field hospital and then you've also had tours where you were out, you know, attached to an infantry company. Yeah. Um, and I had, well, I had tours that were again, less kinetic than the, the Afghanistan Iraq tours. And to be honest, I was quite gl glad of them because they kind of, um, it's, 
it was almost like if, if I look back at my career it was almost like it was built I don't want to say perfectly but the sort of building blocks it was just slowly slowly building up to that does that make sense and that wasn't because it was I think it was, I just got lucky I saw a little bit in Kosovo and then I saw a bit more in Sierra Leone and it was just sort of slowly building so I, I, maybe I don't know I just got lucky in that sense whereas I, imagine being a, a junior medic being thrown into you know Helmand province or you know in the Sada city I mean that's got a you know I could just you can just sort of imagine how that would feel I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing maybe I mean obviously people stepped up but I, I was I'm quite um, happy and quite sort of I felt quite privileged to have the kind of army upbringing that I did you know I was lucky right, and yeah so. like you like you say so the the hospital side although again it was it wasn't kinetic it was very quite emotionally quite hard because all you see is the doom and gloom you know you all you see is people in shit state and then and, and again all and you see the emotions whereas when when I when I was a medic at the front I I saw you see a very different type of soldier you see um people are still it's all kicking in people had doing what they need to do and then getting that getting the patient on the bird to get back to the hospital the the guys at the receiving end at the hospital the ones that really do a lot of the shitty work you know and and I I really I mean every sort of time I I remember even pulling a nurse's shift they were that they were that sort of snowed under I said yeah I'll do a shift and it was probably the hardest 12 hours I was like this is this is you know, this is crap because you just not only are you having to care for patients, you're having to do all the cleaning and all of you know, it was a tough 12 hours. And, and like I said, you, you're just dealing with all the sadness, you know, you're dealing with a lot of the emotional stuff. And that was quite hard going. Right. And, and I would imagine like, you know, maybe someone who's a nurse, like, let's say not in the military. Yeah, and and they they did it because you know they thought it would be a good career choice to make good money and benefits and that kind of thing, versus someone who is who has an emotional attachment and believes in what's going on and and yeah. you know, believes in her fellow soldiers and I would imagine that makes it a little more difficult emotionally. But um, yeah, so you you know you you've had some interesting experiences uh, on deployment you know in war zones. Uh, would you be able to share a story? with the audience of maybe a time where you've you had to treat somebody, uh, that sort of thing? Well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's been a few incidences like that, John. <laughs> <laughs> Pull up a sandbag. No, I'm kidding. Um, well, so we had, like, a, a, when on my final deployment, which is obviously the, the most fresh, um, I had a group of, of younger CMTs, combat medics, and uh, so we, would, we were treating a fair amount of casualties um, in our um, patrol base. And I was, I, I was just became very aware of even when we were treating Afghan casualties of that you're always surrounded by armed Afghans, you know. And so, and we had no, we didn't have a doctor with us. So of our group, I was the senior medic, and and you know I was like very well prepared for that role. But it was still, I not only like medically, I felt very much responsible for my medics. You know, I, I didn't want to be telling parents how you know how someone had been hurt and you know that that was quite a, a tough call and then so I mean I suppose from a medical perspective we had just one incident in particular we had a call sign um coming into us and they were hit with a direct hit with an RPG and we took we you know they, they were quite close they were hit quite close to the patrol base 
um, and then they were brought in, and the you know the the whole inside of the um, what's known as a Pinsgau, which is one of our um, military-style vehicles. So that was all that was in shit state. You know, the the guy on top cover had, um, I think he'd been yeah he'd been shot in the head, so he'd taken a direct round to the head, but he was still what he was still. Um, they weren't signs of life, but he was manoeuvring. I'm not saying manoeuvring, but he was showing signs that people potentially could have thought he was still alive, but he wasn't. So I suppose having to deal with dealing with patients that still very much need your care and then, but dealing with the emotional side of having to kind of pronounce someone dead when I'm in really no position to do that, I'm not a doctor, but you still have to take on that responsibility. That can get quite complex. And that did actually, that was kind of, and I always found after every every casualty incident, I mean, bearing in mind, I'll, I'll put it into perspective. So over a period of six days, we had 30 casualties. And over a period of seven weeks, we had 66 casualties with four dead. So wow. over every single casualty incident, you always had this feeling of exhaustion. But the, the worst of it was, you're always exhausted, but you always knew you had to it wasn't a case of like, I, I've got jet lag at the moment, so I can obviously get my merry little head down and think, oh, I might have a little lion tomorrow, but it's not like that. You have to keep finding the energy from somewhere. You have to keep right. and and then add. To, and this isn't. I'm not. This isn't poor me. This is just generally how soldiers, medics are. So, and bearing in mind your your rations are low. You know, then from the grunts' perspective, their their ammunition's low. Water's at a premium because you can't just. You know, it's not like you can just um, have a like a, a an ever sort of increasing amount of kit that you just jump into does that make sense and then and, and most of all for me as a medic med supplies were so low you know I remember looking at my med kit thinking I've not got enough to sustain us and and saying to my my company commander you know and and being quite frank and quite honest and I know you know we ended up with quite a a, a solid relationship where I could talk to him like that and you, clearly you had sir on the end it didn't become like we were best muckers but there was that understanding that I could go and say you know we're fucked and we need to get we need medical kit. And then he, and he, I think you get to a point where people, once you've, you've got a few weeks together in combat, you, everyone understands, you know, they know if you're bluffing or they know if you're, you sort of, you can't hide on the battlefield. You can't hide um, anything really, I suppose. And, uh, and that, that became, I became very aware of that. I'm very aware that you have to be honest. You know, it's pointless saying we're all good and you're not. That doesn't really help anyone. Right, you know. So, did I? I just went right off on one then. Did I have something completely different? <laughs> <laughs> I'm jet lagged, John. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> yeah, um, but then having said that, I've had you know equally um, difficult times in the in the private sector. You know, I, I can. It's still quite hard for me to talk about, but I remember um, one of my last well, the last month that I was in Baghdad and a very good friend of mine, a very close friend of mine, you know, died of a heart attack. And he oh, was, wow. you know, another, uh, uh, yeah, a Kiwi operator. I mean, a, 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 one of the nicest guys, you know, a brilliant guy and he used to do everything for everyone. And, you know, he um, sat at breakfast. And I remember being caught, someone came running to my room and he had a similar name to the project, um, our project manager. So initially, I just didn't think of his name, and then the and then when I got to, obviously the casualty presented themselves, and it, it was um, Raf's, and I remember just being completely 
for all the things that I dealt with, I wasn't really ready for that, you know, it was a real shock. And then, um, but, you know, I'll share this obviously with you. And it's, it, I ended up having to give him mouth to mouth. And, and of all that, I'm saying that as a really experienced medic, it made me feel sick, you know, just because it was, I, it was extremely hard to deal with, um, someone that close, even though I'd been through, through that much. And, you know, the guys around me, you know, I remember guys in the back of the ambulance when we dropped, um, Raf's off and, and gave him to the, air, the, the PJs, um, you know, people were, were devastated. So even though I'd, I was no longer in a uniform, I still, and the guys around me were no longer in uniform, but you still feel that loss because the team is exactly the same. You know, it's still your brothers, it's still your sisters. You don't feel any different just because you're a contractor. Right. And that's the thing, you know, fallacy some people have. They think, oh, all these guys, are, they're on the, the pop star wages, which I must say they're, they're no longer pop star wages. But the fact is, you're still part of a brotherhood. You're still part of a team that you don't want to lose. So anything that happens is nowhere. It's not. It's, it's no less than what you would have um, felt losing one of your own in the military. Right. right. So, so again, it's. Um, I wouldn't say that contracting is that different. It is slightly different, but it's not. You still have the same feelings, the same emotions. Right, and and you've done. Total time in like in conflict zone as a contractor, you had like what, like six years or so. Yeah, six six years. Um, and I and I'd, I'd obviously now I'd go back and do different things, but I like to what I what I can do now is I can pick um, the things that mean more to me because what means what means the most is my time, you know, my time with my family. So I look at a job now and it has to be worthwhile. So like the job that I'll go to next, which potentially could be in. South America is, you know, looking at helping kids. So if it's if I, if I feel that's worthwhile to me, then I'll go. But if it's not, then I don't. You know, it's. I took a few jobs, and I've done the carrying an umbrella down Oxford Street while someone shops, and that's not for me. Yeah. You know, I do, and I've tried it. You know, I'm not knocking it. So there's some people that are very good at it, but for me, you know, my time's precious. So I, it has to mean something now. For me to go, and, and and that's not even just looking at dollar signs. That's actually I have to get something personally out of a job in order to do it. So I don't know what's I don't know what's happening, John. <laughs> I'm getting old. <laughs> yeah, so that, that, that's yeah. all good stuff, and and um, you know, it's it's just interesting to to kind of see the, you know, like like you said, you had different deployments, and you felt like your experiences kind of helped build you up to be the best soldier and best medic that yeah. you could be at the most important or critical time in your military career, you know, with a very kinetic deployment. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's all interesting stuff. And it's just interesting how people, uh, especially medics, you know, like you can get out and there's so much work that can be done all over the planet uh, yeah. on a medical there is. type of side, you know, and, and uh, it's really interesting stuff to see how like, like Chris, the uh, the corpsman who I I had a conversation with, who I will play that in a second. Yeah, I can't wait to hear his story because they're a really good outfit, and potentially I'd like to maybe go and work with them at some point. Yeah, they're they're doing really good work, and and they're yeah, actually they are. um they're getting ready to send teams into Syria, and actually part of this episode would be to help recruit uh, medics who would be interested to potentially go into Syria and do some work there yeah. so you know it, they're doing really good stuff they have a really interesting team and different uh 
medics from you know all over the Western world, and it, it's very interesting stuff. And uh, I know ISIS really uh, doesn't like them. And yeah. uh, after the first, really, yeah, John, really, they did. <laughs> after it's funny because actually, when I first had. Uh, Aaron Epstein on the the guy who yeah he's, I do, I've been in contact with um I don't, God it's like saying contact on that I've been in comms with Aaron he's a very yeah. nice chap yeah and it's funny because you were on that was the first time you were on yeah the it was wasn't it yeah and and shortly after that some form of like ISIS sympathizers were like trying to hack all my shit and um it, you know I, I wasn't prepared for it but this time I am yeah. prepared so you guys can try all you want um. <laughs> no, and, that, and that's the thing it's almost like um i still feel now even you know i keep myself fit and strong i can still do push-ups and all the all the fun stuff but you know if, if i had to you know even if there was some sort of national service came back you know i'd have no no qualms with um with ever g- going back somewhere i think it's once it's in you it's one of those things isn't it right right and the way the way things are you know it's it's not and it's not bravado. It's not to say yeah. It's just a case of that there's a reality here. And even whilst there was a way that attack in um, Berlin that people are using vehicles as um, as weapons. I mean, not that that's a new, but it's still it just shows it to what levels that people sort of stooped for, for their goals or their. Um, so people do need to be prepared, and that's not, you know, it's not a case of we don't have the luxury of an ivory tower, you know. Um, Saying, oh, you know, things do need to change, but until they do change, you, you need to be prepared. Right, absolutely, absolutely. And, and and one of the good things about being prepared is now that there's so many individuals and companies that provide this kind of training and, you know, even podcasts you can listen to and, and people give you tips and, and uh, you know. Just make sure you go to the right ones. Right, exactly. Yeah, and don't so you don't waste your money on... Um, well, I always do. I always think that there's there's plenty of guys out there, and you and you've had a fair few on the podcast anyway. You know that that, that you have to check out people and make sure that they've got the relevant um, qualifications. Because I always I always get quite skeptical of if I want to go and um, I don't know if I wanted to go and learn to drive, I can drive. <laughs> but if I wanted to go, I want someone who who's had the most experience in that. You know, and I'm not gonna. I'm not going to go to someone who's predominantly had a nursing experience to learn to shoot, and that's no. It doesn't mean nurses can't shoot. I'm just saying, make sure someone's got the relevant sort of background and qualifications. Right, right, and well, you know, and another kind of good thing about that specifically is with the social media the way it is, and and so many different like prominent individuals, you can have yeah. access to these people. You can actually ask, just simply ask and say, hey, yeah. is this legit or is this legit? And, and you'll probably get a solid response, you know? Yeah, definitely. Because people, you know, this, people are at sometimes, um, it's not nice, but there are some people out there that just are trying to take take people's money. But there are really, really good schools out there and all they cover everything that you need you need to know. And it not necessarily... Um, that you need to sort of barricade your house. It's just certain things that little tips that can help, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. It's all good stuff. All good stuff. So. Are we, are we, are we becoming preppers, John? Yeah, exactly. Soon I'm going to get a have, t-shirt that says I'm a prepper. <laughs> have uh, bunkers and. Uh, I'm preppy. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's kind of crazy in the United States. There's like a huge fucking demographic I know. Of like I know. Well, I know people, and, and I love them to dearly, or love them dearly. But I know people that have got um, like ISO containers buried and shit. <laughs> and I, I'm not. It's funny, but it's not funny. It's just it's it's life, isn't it? And it's not. Yeah. Um, I tell you, I won't be laughing when I'm saying, "Can I come and live in your ISO container, please?" Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad, I'll be glad to have those friends, but no, it's, it's cool. It's just, and it, I think, especially in the States, because you, you guys are like a gun culture also, and I think taking your guns off you would be as crazy as giving us guns. Yeah, Because yeah, we're not yeah, a gun course. culture, you know? So it's almost like um, that's how you are, and that's you know very much um, a society that hunts and all those different things, you know? So a lot yeah. of the time the, the hobby, hobbies and stuff are healthy. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, all right, cool. So, with that being said, now I'll play the interview that I had with Chris, the uh, former Navy corpsman who now works with the Global Surgical Medical Support Group. Hey, what's up, guys? We have a very special episode for you this week. On with me for this week's podcast is Chris, and Chris is a former Navy corpsman, but Chris is doing some very special work now with the Global Surgical Medical Support Group over in Kurdistan, or what some people might know as Northern Iraq. And uh, they're doing very good, very important work out there and assisting and helping with the fight against ISIS. Uh, Chris, what's up, brother? Hey, man, doing all right. Yourself? I'm good, man. I am good. So, Chris, b- before we get into the, the work that you were doing out there in Kurdistan or Northern Iraq, um, can we talk about your background in the U.S. military first? Sure, sure. So I uh, started out in the Navy. Um, didn't really know what I want to do, but I heard about corpsmen and I thought being a medic was a good route to go. So I got into that and because uh, I wanted to go with the Marines. So straight after I finished my school, got sent out to uh, 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines out in 29 Palms, California, one of the most glorious places on earth. <laughs> and uh Deployed out of there with them to uh, Nauzad in Helmand Province. Um, got back and then a few months later deployed again out to Sangin. Um, so that was my background as a medic. We uh, it was did a lot did a lot of work out there. Lots of casualties, um, mostly Afghans. So it was really good, really good training. So you spent your your entire career as a corpsman attached to. A Marine unit? Yeah, Marine Infantry Unit 2-7 and 3-7. Um, so that's all I want to do. Didn't really want to go back to work in a hospital, just like being out in the field with the Marines. Right. Okay, cool. So um, would you be able to talk about – so like, all right, on the podcast, you know, we have – I've had a lot of different guests on with medical backgrounds, whether mm-hmm. it be – uh, you know, a doctor or combat medic, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And obviously the the skills that you guys learn are extremely important. And then obviously the experiences that you guys gain while in combat on the medical side are invaluable, you know, for, you know, TCCC, things like that, bleeding control. And, and obviously you guys on the battlefield, you guys see some extreme stuff, blast wounds, stuff like that. Um, in the last 15 years, 16 years of war, 
you know, with nonstop deployments and, and things moving at a very fast pace, guys are coming out of the military and they're doing some really cool things, whether, whether it be starting their own companies and, and running training programs for, you know, first responders, police officers, EMTs, firefighters, or civilians as well. And it's really, you know, like from what I've noticed personally, I would say like in the last year, I've really seen a lot more of it. And I feel like they're really doing a very good job in elevating the the general understanding of uh, bleeding control and, and TCCC and that sort of thing for like the civilian population. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really important, especially now in this day and age where you see the potential for terrorist attacks to happen absolutely anywhere. I mean, um, when we were flying back to the States, we were flying through Istanbul, Turkey, and you heard about the recent attack that just happened there, a mass casualty scenario. So people have the skills needed to help to uh, treat patients in the mass casualty scenario. It's great because you really never know where it could happen. Right. And, and so uh, most of the, most of the guys that I've talked to from the medical side were army medics, whether it was army soft or like a 68 whiskey. Um, now, I know one thing that they were doing on the Army side that was really making a difference was all of the guys in the platoon, in the unit, would have, like, basic training for TCCC, tourniquet use, that sort of thing. And that really made a difference where so where it wasn't, you know, at the point of injury, one of the guys can quickly, you know, evaluate the injury and do what they could to patch it up before the medic got there. Um is is that something that's happened in the Marine Corps as well? Oh, definitely. Marines, all, all our units, so we, before we deploy, we would make sure that every Marine in our platoon had been through a combat lifesaver class and was trained in the whole P-March-B category and TCCC. So they were all proficient in putting tourniquets on to stop the bleeding or applying direct pressure with or pressure dressings. Um, they could all do neo decompressions. Um, they would know the signs and symptoms and the contraindications for why I do neo decompressions. Most all of them are good with IVs. They could all start lines on patients. So I, there were some, there were some Marines that I was like, man, you're, you're pretty much a corpsman yourself. You're a medic. So we're pretty confident in our Marines and being able to take care of each other. Right. That's awesome. So, so for the corpsman like training pipeline, all of that is done in the Navy, and then you switch over to the Marine Corps. How does that work exactly? Yeah, so you start out at a corpsman school. It's called your A school, and that's three months long, and that's just kind of a basic overview, like EMT type course, where you just get your feet wet a little bit. And after that, you just go to a school called Field Medical Training Battalion. Oh, I went to the one out in Camp Pendleton. And that's run jointly by Marines and corpsmen. And that's where they transition you over to the Marine side of things. It's kind of a mix of like Marine boot camp and SOI school of infantry where they teach you just basic basics of um, the Marine lifestyle and how to work with then fire teams, how to buddy rush, marksmanship. Um, And then once you finish that, you get sent out to your Marine unit. 
once you get sent to your marine unit, then they send you to if you're going to a combat unit, uh, we call them victory units, like three seven two seven infantry battalions. They will send you out to another school called uh, combat trauma medicine, and that's the best training you get in the military. That's where you have a uh, life tissue training. So they'll have like a pig, and the pig will be sedated, and then they'll go ahead and do all sorts of give it all sorts of injuries. They'll cut a leg off, they'll shoot it in the chest, they'll give it burns, and they'll have you treat it. So they run through pretty much almost every scenario you could get with a patient, and you get that hands-on application with a live pig, and that's really useful for uh for the training you get downfield. Right. And, and how long would that entire process, because, and the reason I'm asking is because a lot of the audience uh, on the podcast would be young men and women who aspire to join the military and, and possibly, you know, become a corpsman or become a 68 whiskey or, you know, a special operations medic. So I'm asking just so that, you know, these, this demographic of Americans can kind of get an understanding of what to expect and what it could be like and uh and and kind of equip them prior to entry with the most the best tools possible you know so how long would you say that process is uh for becoming a corpsman who's going to be attached to a marine infantry unit from the moment you begin your training to the moment you're ready to deploy it takes about a year that's why uh, all medics with the Navy, all corpsmen, they usually sign five-year contracts because you need that extra year for the training all the schools they'll send you to in order to uh, be ready to deploy. And there's always extra schools you send to. Like I went to uh, cold weather medicine training up in Bridgeport, California, where they put you up in the mountains and teach you all sorts of ways to take care of cold weather casualties. So it could, it's all, it's usually about a year long that it takes you to finish everything. Okay, cool. And, um, and now, you know, we have different guests on a podcast, uh, you know, different, uh, from all different kind of backgrounds and different experiences. Majority of the guys, men and women have deployments, you know, combat experience to Afghanistan, to Iraq and, and elsewhere. Um, would you be able to, you know, possibly share a story with the audience, maybe of a time in combat where you were tr- you treated a casualty. Yeah, um, my second deployment that I went on, uh, we were really focused on just assisting and training the Afghans to fight Afghanistan. It shifted from Americans taking the lead to the ANA, the Afghan National Army, taking the lead, and they were out there and saying in. Um, manning most of the PVs and fobs out there and we were their support. But with that shift, um, they started taking a lot more casualties, um, lots of mass casualties as well. Their vehicles and their equipment they have is not as well designed to take on explosions as our vehicles were. So there was one scenario where, uh, there was a mass casualty and, um, one, a couple of their vehicles that struck IEDs and we were like the QRF for them and they alerted us to that. So we went out to help out. Um, I was with a group of three other Marines and they were great help in that situation because all of them could, uh, 
do the basic interventions needed to help save lives, putting on tourniquets, occlusive dressings, neo decompressions. Um, so when these two vehicles got hit by IEDs, there's about 20 casualties total. And when we show up to a scene, it was really chaotic. Um, and we just started triaging, started going, all right, who's alive, who needs care right now. And, uh, we got everything from triple amputees to just minor burns, but having all my Marines trained up to the standard that they could all perform casualty care efficiently was great because it wasn't just me, the medic out there trying to treat all these casualties. Uh, it was like each of us had four casualties and we all go checking up on them. And once we finished the initial, uh, interventions, and got them somewhat stabilized. We were able to get the medevac and take them to a higher level of care. Right. And for the audience who might not know, can you explain what a triage is? Yeah. So triage is, uh, in a tactical situation, you're trying to keep as many guns up in the fight as possible. So you're, you have a limited amount of resources. You know, when you're out in the field, you usually only have a, as a medic, you have a med bag. Your Marines have a small, uh, individual first aid kit, maybe an extra CLS bag, which is a combat lifesaver bag. So you're very limited in equipment, so you can't just devote all your equipment and time to one patient. Um, you have different categories of triage. So when you're on the field, um, you have your green level, which is guys that you just need minor, minor care and they could get up in the fight and keep keep uh, rounds down range in order to keep the enemy down. Then there's um, red patients which need care quickly or they're going to die. So those are like the two ones we focus on the most. Um, but you're trying to keep as many patients alive as long as possible with limited resources. So, yeah. So it, it it's kind of like also, you know, saying like categorizing you know, the injuries saying who, who may need more attention and who, like, who do we need to get out of here? And then maybe the guys with smaller injuries who can, we can pass them up quickly and they can continue the fight. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you really make a decision on like who lives and who dies sometimes. But, um, one of the things you realize in combat and with combat casualties is that there's lots of people who sometimes, no matter what you do, they're not going to be able to live. So, you have to be able to recognize those type of casualties and move on and take care of the guys that you can save and you can make a difference in. Right. Right. Okay. So, and, and how long total were you in the Marine Corps? Um, I was told for five years. Okay. Five years. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, all right. So now we, we can talk more about recent events. Um, Obviously, there's a, a lot going on in Kurdistan or northern Iraq, as some people may know it, with uh, the Kurds are really fighting heavily against ISIS um, in Kurdistan. And as, as well as on the on the Syrian side, there's a, a heavy Kurdish population and they're also fighting ISIS in Syria as well. Um, previously on the podcast... I had a gentleman by the name of Aaron Epstein on the podcast, and he runs an organization called the Global 
Surgical Medical Support Group. And they do very good work. They're out there now, uh, and they've been out there for a while now, providing medical training for Kurdish medics as well as treating casualties. Um, now, if anyone who's listening has been following them on social media, they they post pictures. Uh, sometimes, I believe, sometimes they post videos, but mainly pictures showing some of the work that they're doing. Uh, they do a lot of good work. And Chris, you have been working with this group now, um, and you just got back from a trip out there. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So we just did about a three-week trip out there in northern Iraq working with the Kurdish military and government. Um, um, it was my first time out there working with the Kurdish people, and I was impressed. We, uh, Our mission was to uh, train their medics in TCCC and CLS, TAC, uh, tactical combat, casualty care. Um, so we were training them up, trying to train them up to the standards that the coalition forces are trained up to the way we're trained here in the States, similar to a course that Marines and army guys would go through before deploying overseas. We had our group slope into, we had the doctors and surgeons, which, uh, were working out of a hospital. And then we had the medical team, which was, uh, six medics and, Three of us are from the States, prior veterans, and three were from Norway. Um, and together we would go to different bases and areas throughout northern Iraq and hold two-day courses on TCCC. Um, and we were able to train about 450 different Peshmerga medics and just regular infantry guys on these uh skills so we uh we started out um close to uh just south of Mosul um at a military base there and first group we had was uh medics and they had some previous training but we were able to go uh go deeper into it and teach them some other skills one of the things I learned uh when going on this trip was uh improvising so you know with the u.s military we have some of the best equipment um medical medically wise we have t- tourniquets are given to everybody everyone has ifax that individual first aid kits that are stocked if we need something usually we ask for it and we're going to get it but with these guys out there uh their equipment is very limited so instead of training them the way that we treat our medics with our gear we had to improvise and um come up with different ways to make tourniquets these guys most of them don't have any tourniquets at all so it's easy to go there and be like oh yeah it's easy to stop the bleeding and they're like well, how do you do that with a tourniquet then they ask you what's a tourniquet oh okay so then you have to break it down for them and show them how to use the equipment they have like scarves clothing um and to make improvised tourniquets same thing with chest seals you know they don't have these fancy halo chest seals we have here in the States. Um, so we just show them how to take a piece of plastic and tape it down on four sides to make their own improvised occlusive dressing. So a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of adapting on this trip we had to do with the way we taught our courses. Um, but these uh, Kurdish medics were, and just regular infantry Peshmerga medics, they were very motivated to learn. They, uh, I've worked with Afghans before in, in Afghanistan and 
the difference between the two was uh, quite quite stark. So lots of times working with the Afghans, we felt like they didn't want to really work with us much. They, uh, at least this was from my experience, were not very motivated. But uh, with working with the Peshmerga, these guys were very, very quick learners and they wouldn't fall asleep in class. It's, we'd be going for hours and they would uh, be up the whole time listening and asking questions, trying to figure out better ways to provide medical care. Um, that, that's yeah. pretty interesting. Uh, it's an interesting concept because I know, you know, the Global Surgical Medical Support Group, they rely heavily on donations for equipment and that sort of thing. Uh, so I, I could imagine that you guys would have to be doing some sort of uh, improvising out there. But but that's pretty interesting, though. Yeah, yeah. We did have a lot of equipment we took with us that was donated. But um, there's a vast need for equipment out there in northern Iraq. These guys need absolutely everything. Um, so we've had around $700,000 worth of equipment donated. Um, and we still have more donations coming into GSMSG centers here in the States that's getting pushed out there to these guys out on the front lines who are fighting ISIS. But we did have to do a lot of improvising, but we find, you find ways when you need to save a life, you find, you find ways to do what you need to do. Yeah. And I could imagine as well with the, the offensive and the push to, to retake, um, Mosul, that there was uh, an increase in in casualties, uh, and and I know that from following uh, you guys on social media, they, they were t- on some of the posts they had. They were talking about how there was going to be, you know, they were going to have to uh, treat more casualties. Uh, you know, they were expecting that with this new offensive that was going to take place. Um, were you doing any of that or were you just involved in the training side of it? Since we were working with the Kurdish government, we were more involved with the training because right now in Mosul, um, most of the city is not part of the uh, Kurdish territory. Most of it is belongs to the regular Iraqi government. So they're not sending in their Peshmerga to take over the city. They're letting the Shia and the Sunni militias go in there and, uh, take the city because it would cause more problems if you're sending Kurdish troops to that area. Right. So because right. we're working with the Kurdish government, we weren't going, we weren't treating the casualties coming out of there, which were, um, Shia or Sunni casualties. So there's a big, there's a big rift in, uh, Iraq between the three as has been well documented between the Kurds, the Shia and the Sunni. So you don't want to send in guys to cause a worse problem. So we were mostly, um, towards the, by the front lines close to the bases that um, the Peshmerga were at. And we were training the guys for the next push that's going to be coming. Um, there's still parts of Kurdistan, which are close to the five farther up north, like in Sinjar. Um, we were out there training out one of the bases and they started taking nearby. We started taking in mortars from ISIS and some gunfire, but where we were, we were, we were focused on, getting out on the field and working out there. Our mission was to train the medics that were going to be going out in the field. Right. Okay, cool. And, um, and you, you plan on doing, continuing to do work with the GSM, uh, GC. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, there's more trips coming up. Um, you mentioned earlier a trip to Syria that is going to be happening. So um, they're trying to recruit guys for that right now. Any uh, prior like SF medics or ex corpsmen that have some good combat experience um, love to go on that trip should apply and get into it. Um, Syria is still a crazy, crazy place right now. And they need a lot of medical support um, for casualties. So yeah, I plan on going back at some point. Um, hopefully to Syria, maybe back to Iraq. What we're trying to do is the guys who went on this trip right now is uh, take each of us, take our own teams out there and, team of four or five guys and since we've already been there before be able to take a new group in and um do the same thing again this way expand the effect that gsmsg can have out there and train a greater number of medics cool so for anyone who's interested in applying uh to work with you guys where can they do that they could go on gsmsg's website um, or you could follow, if you follow them on Instagram, you could get on their page and follow the links over to their website. And then there's an application process. Very basic. Just put your name, phone number, email, a little bit of information about yourself, resume. And uh, they're pretty good at getting back to you and uh, letting you know what you need to do next. So it's a great opportunity for all former military members. They want to have an impact on what's going on overseas with ISIS and helping train troops out there to be successful on the battlefield. I definitely recommend it. Okay. So the, the website is gsmsg.org. So again, anyone who's interested, you can go to that, that handle gsmsg.org. They have a contact tab and a join our team tab. And, uh, from there you just fill out the, uh, the form and, and, uh, and then, you know, I guess there's a process going back and forth of vetting and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And they on Facebook and on Instagram, if you want to follow them on there, um, keep up with the work they're doing and or support them. That'd, that'd be great. Right. And as well as, uh, you know, following them, even if it's someone who's willing to contribute, uh, maybe you don't have a military background, they also accept donations, and um, and like I said earlier, they take uh, gear donations as well. So tourniquets, um, you know, dressing that, that that kind of thing. They accept that, and they have I believe they have a PO box where some of the stuff can be sent to. Um, what what kind of equipment would you say would be accepted or would be acceptable to send? Um, big need we have is tourniquets. Occlusive dressings, gauze, meal decompression, any equipment. If it hasn't been used, um, it's still new, definitely set it in. But all these first responder type equipment, trauma shears, um, med bags, um, most tourniquets are the most important. That's the number one thing people are dying from is blood loss out there. That's easily preventable. So um, any type of airway um, airway medic, uh, equipment like King LTs, intubation kits, cry kits, all those would be great use. Awesome, man. Awesome. It's, you know, it's, it's always good to 
have somebody from the organization on, uh, especially someone like yourself with a um, military medical background. Um, you know, we appreciate everything you've done for this country and as well as the work that you're still doing in uh, helping stop and counter a group like ISIS that uh, really has no place in, in today's world and today's society. So, um, you know, we, we appreciate everything you do, man, and, and thank you for your service. Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate being able to talk about the trip and uh, spread more awareness about GSMSG and ways people can help. Yeah, all right, brother. Thanks, man. Thank you for coming on, and I appreciate everything. All right, John. Take care. Peace. Great conversation with Chantel and Chris, former Navy corpsman, now working with the GSMSG. They're doing incredible work in Iraq, and soon we'll be going into Syria. So any soft medics, 18 Delta, Sarks, Corman, uh, you know, 68 whiskeys, anybody who's interested in doing some work and contributing to the fight, you can check out and apply at their website. Um, and also for anyone, any of the listeners, anyone who is a regular audience to the show, if you know anyone who might be potentially a good guest for the podcast, or if you yourself have a background and experience in um, the military or combat, just reach out to me at uh, podcast at globalrecon.net and um, you know we could talk further. And also for any of the audience, if you have anything that you think would be interesting to listen to or a certain individual who might be good for the show, you can reach out as well and uh, we can talk about that further. So with that being said, now I'll close out this week's podcast. As always, subscribe, download, share the podcast with your family and friends. Help us continue to grow. Uh, Chantel Taylor is on Instagram at mission underscore critical. I post on there as well. Um, on Facebook, her Facebook account is Battleworn, the memoirs of a combat medic in Afghanistan. You can also check out Chantel's book. It's a very good book. It's called Battle Worn. The easiest place to get it is on Amazon. Check it out. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second one is Black Ops Matter. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. I'm on LinkedIn. Just search Global Recon. Enjoy doing this episode. Next week, we'll have another good episode for you guys. And uh, we'll see you then. Peace.